Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, in mind to lead me through the night. I get a little help here from Brother Tom to kind of move some tables, and you'll get the essence of what's happening here in a minute. I think it was uh, probably 1999, if memory serves, that I first began cycling as an adult. My first bike in that foray into cycling was a, a typical department store bike. Uh, if I remember right, my dad won it in some work prize, and I started riding that bike. And it worked for a while in the beginning. I would ride, you know, three miles at a time and a, a couple of days a week, and that was okay. And I started riding five miles at every ride, and, and then I did that a few days a week. When I started pedaling for seven to ten miles and doing that every other day, that department store bike wore out really fast. So my next bike was my first bike shop bike, I'll call it. I still have it. It's a hardtail mountain bike. Got suspension in the front, fat, knobby tires, low gearing, a really beefy frame. I envisioned myself riding in wooded trails. However, there weren't any close to my house. And so I found myself with this new mountain bike riding on pavement more than I was on trails. And then one day I was riding with a friend who he was on a road bike. And the difference became very clear to me. My bike, his bike rather, was just smooth and quiet. And he zipped down the road. And, and my bicycle's knobby tires made me sound like a dump truck coming down the street. Just roaring. And he pedaled seamlessly, just moving along. And I was spinning like crazy, and I wasn't keeping pace. And my gearing was fine for trails, but it just wasn't efficient on the road. And we, we finished that bike ride. I remember my friend saying to me, how come you bought that bike? Why didn't you, why didn't you buy a road bike? And he said to me, here, pick up my bike. So I went over and I lifted his bike, and wow, that thing was light. He said, now pick up your bike. Well, it wasn't light. And then he offered this, you know, if you find yourself riding mostly on the road, maybe you ought to think about getting yourself a road bike. Well, I did think about it. And later I added a road bike. This bike is more than 10 pounds lighter than my mountain bike. And once, once I got this lighter bike, I found I was riding more often. And I would ride greater distances. 10 miles became 20. 20 miles became 30. 30 miles became 50. And then a friend said, you need to register for a, a group ride, a sentry ride. Ride 100 miles in a day. I signed up, and I did it. And up until that time, I primarily had been riding alone. I, I just took off on my bike by myself. But I got in that group ride, and soon I got in other group rides. 
And I learned to ride in these groups of cyclists called a, a peloton. Uh, now, riding in a peloton is nerve-wracking at first because everybody's close. You're shoulder to shoulder, handlebar to handlebar, pedal to pedal, tire to tire. And you get in that mix of humming cyclists, and it goes through your mind, if this thing goes bad, if somebody wobbles, if somebody just bumps another rider, then we're all going down. And certainly, if you've seen televised coverage of professional rides, you can see where they go down and people get busted up. But here's the truth. Crashes happen solo riding also. And the wounds are the same. In fact, here's a weird phenomena. If you go down in a peloton, you often land on somebody else and breaks your fall. I'm just saying that's the way it works. Crash solo or crash in a peloton, you can bust up your face, you can get some road rash, you can break a collarbone, very common. But it's similar in both kinds of race. Why then ride in a peloton? Because the benefits outweigh the risk. The reason you ride in these close groups is wind resistance. The group streamlines the riders behind that first rider who's facing the wind. And those who follow, they're still pedaling, but really there's less effort. They get a, a bit of rest. And until you've ridden that way, it's kind of hard to understand. But you tuck in that group behind everybody else, and it's like, well, this is easy. You're spinning along, you're pedaling, and everybody else is breaking that wind effect, and you're climbing right along. So once you overcome that initial hesitancy, riding in a peloton is more beneficial. And I'll tell you this, it's a blast. Group rides, you can ride longer and faster than a person who can do it alone. And you get in that groove of riding with a group of people. I rode a multi-day trip one time, and there was a group of about 30 of us. And we hummed for about 10 miles at about 30 miles an hour. And it was just a blast. Farthest ride I ever completed in one day was 150 miles. I was raising money, Drew, for Move the Mission. Sponsored ride. Now, the only way I could do that is because I was helped by three other cyclists. Three friends of mine committed to riding 50-mile segments. And they would ride in the front. And I rode with my bike about six inches from their tire, my front tire, six inches or less from their front tire for 50 miles. They carried the wind. They broke it, made it easier for me. Another person made me more efficient. It helped me succeed. Now, I could only do that because I learned to ride in a peloton. Now, I've been more than 20 years of cycling. I've learned some uniquenesses about this particular sport. I've learned that those who progress from casual rider to serious rider, they take on practices for efficiency and for success. For instance, the food you eat. If you become a serious cyclist, you eat with riding in mind. If you're going to ride an endurance event, the night before that ride you are having a massive plate of pasta. Well, I don't like pasta too much. Too bad, eat your pasta. 
I don't, I don't feel like eating pasta. Eat your pasta. Why do you eat the pasta? Because you carb load. If you load up on carbs the night before, you can endure in the ride during the day. When you get up that morning to ride, you're going to eat a bowl of oatmeal with some raisins and some walnuts. Why? Because that's what you like? Nope, because that's what's good for you. And while you're on that ride, you're going to stop a few times and you're going to eat a banana for the potassium so your muscles don't log up. You're going to carry little boxes of raisins in your pocket and you're going to eat those for a sugar rush. On a bike ride, is an only good day to drink a Coke and eat a Snickers bar because it will energize you for that ride. When you get into this, you don't think about, oh, what do I feel like eating today? No, you eat to facilitate your cycling. Clothing. I remember when I started riding, my friend told me, he said, you need to get you some cycling shoes. And I thought to myself, that's dumb. I've been riding a bicycle since I was a little kid. I've rode my tennis shoes on a bicycle ever since I was a little kid. I don't need no silly shoes. And then I looked up the price of cycling shoes. Man, I really do not need any cycling shoes. These are carbon fiber on the bottom. They're made to clip into your pedals. And I, just, I don't want no dumb shoes. I don't need that. And the more I rode and the more I rode, and I realized that if you get the dumb shoes that clip into the pedals, then you're not only pushing down, you're pulling up. And so instead of one stroke of power, you got both legs working all the time. Your efficiency increases, and you succeed. You endure. You ride for longer. Guess what? I bought a pair of shoes. And every time I ride, I wear a pair of cycling shoes. I remember when I started riding, I thought to myself, okay, I'll ride a bicycle, but I'm not wearing those silly-looking neon-colored spandex shirts. I'm not doing it. I can ride in a T-shirt, bless God. I'll be fine in a T-shirt. And I got me a t-shirt, and I went on a long ride. You go on a long ride, and you realize, you know what? I am soaking wet. This is uncomfortable and miserable. And then I realize, you know what? Here's the other thing that happens. People don't notice cyclists on the road. You're driving along in your ordinary colored t-shirt. They don't see you. They buzz by. I've had mirrors, passenger mirrors come close by and just scare you to death. And you know what? Bicyclists never win that battle. And so, lo and behold, I got me some fancy shirts. I got a whole room full of fancy shirts. I wear these ridiculous things all the time. I don't mind it. They are ripping bright. My family bought them for me. You know what I think? I don't care what you think. Because these work. The more I got into it, listen to me, the more I got into it, what I started out thinking was silly... I recognized made me more efficient. I could ride on the hottest days in St. Louis, 95 degrees, 95% humidity, and man, those shirts are like miracle working shirts. I still get buzzed on occasion, but if you can't see that, it ain't my problem. You know what I'm saying? I recognize the efficiency. The other thing about clothing I realized when I started riding is that everybody's saying, you ought to wear a helmet. You ought to wear a helmet. I was so against helmets when I started riding. I was riding one time on a paved path. There weren't even any cars. I'm like, what are the chances? I'm out on a bike ride with my wife. Some guy comes buzzing by the other, the other way, and he says, put on a helmet. 
I was so irritated, I yelled back, Thanks, Dad! I was just ticked. Like, who do you think you are? I'm a grown man here. I don't need to wear no helmet. I don't need a helmet. Well, the more I rode, and the more I went, and the farther I went, and the more I'm on the streets, and the farther I ride, and I got to realizing when you get the right equipment and you get the right vehicle and the right mechanism downhill, I regularly hit 35 miles an hour, and I've been more than 50 miles an hour on that wee little tire that's about as thick as your pinky finger. You know, if I make a mistake at 50 miles an hour, my noggin's not going to do too good. I love that helmet. I wear that helmet. I wear that helmet all the time. When I started, I didn't think the helmet mattered. But the more I got engaged, the more I realized the value of the helmet. The other thing I found out about cyclists is cyclists are freaky about weight. Now, the easiest way to reduce your weight as a cyclist is your personal weight. The average professional cyclist weighs 130 to 145 pounds. And there's people like me. There was a day when I was close to that. This is not that day. So in addition to personal fitness and reducing your own weight, serious cyclists are always trying to buy equipment that weighs less. They're looking to save weight. Well, casual cyclists don't think that way. You go on vacation to a vacation area and you rent a bicycle, they're going to rent you a cruiser bike. A cruiser bike is some great big old thing, looks more like a tank. It's got a great big frame, it's got a real long wheelbase, it's got fat tires, got handlebars like this, it's got a seat that looks like a tractor seat. You sit upright and you ride. You go down the boardwalk, you ride along the water, you know what I'm talking about. Because you're just cruising, that bike is for one experience during one vacation, those bikes weigh at least 40 pounds and can weigh 60 pounds. Cruiser bike. Well, you get more serious, and, and those bikes, candidly, you can get them for $149.99. Casual riding. But at the opposite end of the spectrum are people who make a living at cycling. And in those races, there are great endurance races called Grand Tours. They're cycling races that last multiple days, hundreds of miles. They are endurance races. The most famous just took place earlier this month, the Tour de France. In the Tour, racers compete over three weeks' time, 21 stages that average about 100 miles each of those 21 days of riding. They get two days to rest. At the end of this year's event, those riders raced for 2,122 miles. Most of us get tired riding in a car that far. They pedal their bikes that far. Now, compared to cruiser bikes, endurance racing bikes are very different. There's a more forward seating position. You lean toward the bars. You got these narrower bars. You got a, a small seat with little padding. You got really skinny tires and compact frames that put the wheel back under the frame. Transmissions with 20-so speeds or more. And these bikes are made of the lightest weight 
of materials. Nowadays, almost every component is carbon fiber. You can buy bikes where the spokes are carbon fiber to reduce weight. In the Tour de France, a bike has to weigh 14.99 pounds, and that's what most of them weigh. But if there wasn't that restriction, there are manufacturers that have made racing bikes that weigh 10 pounds. 10 pounds. Compared to a 40-pound cruiser bike. And so you might say, well, why? Why doesn't everybody just ride these ultralight bikes? Well, cost. 15 years ago, and this is not a Tour de France bike, but 15 years ago, I paid $2,000 for that bicycle. Put another $500 worth of accessories on it 15 years ago. A comparable bike in the Tour de France this month that raced, the average Tour de France bike costs $13,000. $13,000. You get a cruiser bike for $149.99. Why don't more people ride these? Because of the cost, because of the expense. But if you're in this for a career, you're in this as a serious cyclist, then the $13,000 is an investment in your livelihood, in your success, in your efficiency. Now, if you're going to cruise down a boardwalk on vacation, that cruiser bike is fine. But if a career cyclist lined up that same cruiser bike at the Tour de France starting line, he'd be laughed away as a fool. That bike would not make it through the whole race, probably wouldn't make it through the first day. You're definitely not going to compete in any way, shape, or form. So in this cycling world, equipment, riding style, diet, clothing, weight, the more serious the cyclist, the more planning and consideration they give to the sport. And, it, and at first, when you get in, some things just don't seem to matter. But the farther in, you appreciate the value. There's a real difference between the casual cyclist and the serious cyclist. Particularly when endurance racing, daily decisions are measured by their impact on cycling. The author of Hebrews compares endurance racing to the life of faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1, the scripture records this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Run with endurance the race. Endurance. Long distance. Throughout the New Testament, discipleship is never presented as casual. It's not there. If we look to Scripture to define discipleship, following Jesus is a life of faith. 
Uh, our salvation experience is just an entrance into the race, but our lifestyle after salvation is the actual race. And that's why he talks about endurance. Well, my word, preacher, how long is this race? Until the Lord returns or he calls us home. That's how long the race. It's an endurance race. And while so many of us are amen and I appreciate it, nodding your heads, thank you for agreeing so much, in our minds it makes sense. The, the challenge is this, that doesn't always translate into day-to-day -day living. What I know here doesn't always happen here and with our feet, right? Do we follow Jesus like a casual cyclist? Or are we following him like a serious cyclist? Do we consider Jesus, you know, a couple of times a summer when we make a trip to a different city and we get ourselves a warm evening and a nice path and we pedal along on a big seat and big handlebars? Me and Jesus, a few times a year. Or are we, we daily evaluating our choices in light of how they affect our endurance racing? There's a real difference between a casual follower of Christ and a career follower of Christ. You know, as we concluded last week's service, and if you weren't here and you haven't watched it online, you really ought to. When we concluded that service, we recognized that the Old Testament witnesses are precedent for our life of faith. And we recommitted in that service, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. What a, a wonderful and joyful response. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But I'll tell you, I feel like Last week's message needs a follow-up. I'm grateful for the, the saturated, wholehearted response. My wife and I were talking right after the service and said, man, how wonderful it was to see everybody praying. Front to back, side to side, in sincere response to God. I'm grateful for that. I, Yet I, I also think it's prudent to think about this, keeping our commitment. Keeping our commitment. What we talked about to God last Saturday, living that in the days that follow, keeping our commitment. In Matthew 24 and verse 13, Jesus reminds us of this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We're in an endurance race. We have entered into a progressive kingdom competition, if you will. In this endurance race, I wonder what helps us remain to the end. 
I think it's also prudent to have the realization, the conversation, and the understanding. If, as I saw my need in last week's service to recommit to eyes on Jesus, what, what were the things that have derailed me previously? What are the things that could trip me up again? What are the things that caused me to move my focus and vision from where it needs to be? Eyes on Jesus. Man, that sounds so simple. But let's face it, too frequently our eyes end up elsewhere. Why is that? Why does that happen? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, once again, the scripture says there, this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Evidently, our eyes end up elsewhere due to two things. One is weights, and one is super-efficient sins. To remain focused on Jesus, we're told to throw those things away, strip them off, cast them away. Weights and super-efficient sins stand between the casual follower and the lifetime follower. And so we toss them away. The author didn't say, talk to God so he'll remove them. Talk to God so he'll take care of your troubles. He said, you ought to get rid of those. This is on me. You and I are responsible for some things. Are we empowered by the Holy Spirit as we saw fall today? Absolutely. But you and I are left to depend on that Spirit and take action, take discipline for the things that can allow us to be successful. Passage talks about discipline. Followers got to have the will to do things that don't come easy. Followers practice controlled behavior. I don't want to eat pasta. It's not what the Lord asked. He said, if you're going to ride 100 miles tomorrow, you need to carb load. Well, I don't want to taste pasta right now. If you're going to endure in the racing, here's the way to go. Here's the way to succeed. Even the Apostle Paul faced what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 9, look at this. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the most effective apostle that we're aware of. Certainly writing concerns, he's the most prolific. And the Apostle Paul, church planner, man of God, soul winner, he says this, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it for an eternal prize. And so Paul writes in 26, So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. 
27. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what I should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. I mean, you would think after following Christ for so long, discipline wasn't no longer in order. You would think after some serious... Man, that guy's been successful in Christ. He probably doesn't need any self-discipline. That's not what he said. He said, there's things I still have to do. There are things that I still address. There are things that I take care of in my life. Why? Because it makes me more efficient. Paul endured by discipline. Followers of Christ, we don't do everything just because it's easy. We do some things that don't come easy. We practice controlled behavior. Why is that? Why, why is it part of the process? Further down in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5, we see something says, you've forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as his child. Now, a discipline, in this case, it's talking about correction. But I remind you that... Correction is not just ending some things, it's you need to begin some things. Correction is a two-way street, not just delete, but add. Verse number seven, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? You know, I'm not sure why the writer wrote that, but I've sure heard of kids not disciplined by their father. You can hear them from miles away. We don't get excited by that. A friend of mine used to see a child like that, and he said, raised by wolves. We're not not happy about the child not disciplined by their father. Verse number 8, if God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children... It means that you're illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Verse 9, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? Thank God for earthly fathers who instill and direct and correct and inspire and and teach us and lead us. But here's the thing. If I'm going to respect that, I should respect the Lord of glory even more. I should recognize his insight even more. I should value that eternal discipline. Look at Verse 10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. God's discipline is good on occasion. God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness, his separation, consecration into his lifestyle. No disciplines enjoy while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen 
your weak knees. Talking about determination. Talking about willpower. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. He's telling us this. Through discipline, understanding the Lord's discipline, His divine direction, remove hazards, fill potholes, eliminate obstacles. Why? I'm in an endurance race and I need increased efficiency and success. Paul said, run to win. Again, Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Weights and super efficient sins slow us down and trip us up. You know, we find and we believe and we value that this endurance race is so important. It's eternally important. Since I recognize it's eternally important, I not only want to remove the sins that would trouble me, but I want to remove non-sinful things that slow me down. Every runner, every spiritual endurance racer has to carefully and prayerfully assess her life, looking for ways to enhance success and to increase fast and smooth progress. When running to win, we remove what slows or threatens to trip. Now, some of us, our minds have jumped ahead at least a step, if not three or four. And our minds begin to say, okay, So what are the weights? Give me a list. Make this nice and tidy for me. What are these super efficient sins? Come on, now's about the time for you to get red in the face and spit and holler and scream and send us all to hell. Yeah, no list today. No list. I will offer some things to think about. Because that discovery, you and I have different weaknesses. You and I have different things that trip us up. What you might hurdle over, it would trip me quickly. And what I could easily go around, you are stuck by and stopped by and hindered by. This is where the serious career endurance racer Make sure to evaluate. Let me talk a minute about what some of you might be saying. Why, why are you calling them super efficient sins? What is that all about? As the Bible says, there's some sins that easily trip us up. Clever sins. Readily effective sins. I believe that every disciple has her kryptonite, if you will. Everyone trips easily on some sin that in your life is super efficient. As I say that, some of you are thinking back on this week and like, man, was he in my car? Were they, is he in my house? Did my spouse call? We, we got things that trip us up easy. There's, there's ruts that we fall in quickly. They're super efficient sins. The enemy doesn't even get upset when we get on a real righteous road after Christ. He's like, yeah, throw in the kryptonite, chuck out a little nugget, remind him of the rut on the side, 
super efficient sins. Here's one that I think is universal. Pride. Pride. You can find a lot of definitions of pride and a lot of descriptions of pride, a lot of understanding of pride. Let me give you a three-word definition. Ready? Self above God. That's pride. Self above God. That is a super effective sin. Why? Why is it so super effective? I'll tell you because it's internal. And it's easier to hide than some of the external sins. We can cover it up better. We can keep it behind closed doors, we think. The other thing about pride is that it's deceptive. I find I can really find it in other people, but I can't see it in myself. Pride. Pride grows rapidly. Pride is like weed seeds in the dirt. Little bit of stirring, little bit of water, little bit of sun, and boom! Where did that come from? Pride works like that. Pride facilitates additional sins. It's a gateway sin. Pride, the Bible tells us, creates distance from God. And as it creates that distance, other things become effective against God. Now, here's one way that pride works in our lives. In pride, you and I, we believe our non-godly self-talk. We believe our non-godly self-talk. That's what pride does. Because of pride, we don't compare our self-talk to the Word. Because of pride. Due to pride, we don't accept Psalm 37, 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. But pride won't accept that. Pride ignores James 1.25. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free and you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you from doing it. If you read the passage earlier, the word's like a mirror. And if we will put our self-talk into the mirror of God's word, we're able to see what's really true and what's really not. But pride keeps us away from God's mirror. Self above God. Here's what pride does. We think more of ourselves and we think less of ourselves. In pride, I don't need God. But we also in pride say, God can't help me. That's pride. To some, pride says, I don't need to change. I'm good. I got this. That's pride. To others, pride says, I'm beyond change. There's no hope for me. I'm hopeless. Forget about it. But by God's word, those statements are false. God never said, you're beyond help. That's self-talk. That's not God talk. And when I say, I'm good, I don't need this, I don't need that, and I begin to shuffle through God's instructions, that's not God. That's self, putting self above God. Pride is super efficient. And if I'm going to be an endurance racer, I need to neutralize pride in my life. That's one of those super efficient sins.
There are others, but I'm just giving you an idea. In addition to sins, casting off, endurance racers, career followers are concerned about weights. Weights. Weights come in all forms and live in various parts of our lives. Weights slow godly pursuits. Weights reduce our efficiency. For some people, hobbies turn into weights. For other people, there are relationships that slow us down. Their influence against God is more than my influence in their life for God. And relationships become weights. Still others are hindered by media, money, debt, time management. It's just a lot of things that you're never going to find black and white. That's a sin. But it's hurting us nonetheless. It's a weight. The writer of Hebrews says, if you're serious about this, you realize this is a lifetime adventure. Then, then you look to the things you can do to make it better. Weights slow us, they reduce efficiency. We want to remove those things. We want to discover those things. If I'm going to advance in my followership, I need to put some things aside. Maybe I ask like this, have I been struggling in this race because I'm adamant I can do this on a cruiser bike? And is it time to realize there are better vehicles? Have I been adamant like me as an early rider? It, this doesn't matter what I eat. But it's time now that I've gotten farther into discipleship and farther into following Christ that I realize I can take some better things into my spiritual diet in order to have strength and to have guidance. Is it time that I accepted, you know what? A helmet looks a bit dorky and it's kind of uncomfortable at times, but now I, I embrace the protection it brings to my kingdom race. I don't want to wear those funny shoes. There's an investment, there's a cost. I don't want to do that. Is it time? Is it time to recognize? There's some efficiency and some success and some growth and pursuit. If I'll just step back and say, I, I need to remove some weights. Would my spiritual energy increase? Would my spiritual growth increase? Would it be easier for me to follow Christ if I would just edit out of my life some things that really are hindering, they're not helping? I'm not talking about neutral. I'm not talking about quitting your job, living in a tent in the woods. And there are things we need to remove. Here's what I'm going to leave us with. When we're serious about success, when we realize this is a life of faith, endurance racers do this. Regularly evaluate. Regularly evaluate. 
Now, I always talk about prayer. I always talk about the Word. I always talk about connecting with others. Let me give those some specific things. In our prayer, we pray for our identification. If it's hard for me to see pride in myself, I need to ask the Lord to help me see it. I need to ask the Lord, Lord, if there's something that's a weight, something, Lord, that's unique to me, it's holding me back, and I can't see it, I don't understand it, but you know what it is. Will you help me with that? Will you give me the direction? Will you give me some understanding? Will you have somebody help me with that? Lord, show me how I can be better at this. In the same fashion, I think we read the Word with that same desire for identification and revelation. And sometimes we read the Bible and say, okay, show me all the do's. Show me all the don'ts. And still some of us ignore those. Instead, let's read them for the stories. Look at the life of Moses beginning to end. And what can I learn from that guy? What are things that were hindrances and weights that he just tossed? How about Joseph? What can I learn from him? How about Jeremiah? What about Esther? What about Ruth? When I read their stories and I see the ups and downs of their lives, what can I determine from that that helps me to be more efficient? When I read about Stephen, I read about Lazarus or Mary or Martha, what do I learn that allows me to be more efficient? And of course, conversations with veterans. You discover useful insights from those who have been succeeding. Those that glean, we're able to glean from their experience. When I first rode in a Peloton, I was observant. I was watching what was happening. We would ride a ways and take a break, and a friend of mine pulled me over. He said, now listen, when you're in the lead, it's your time to spin up from the group and take the lead. Don't power off right away. You're, you're going to feel strong. You're going to feel ready. But when you get in the lead, keep the same speed for oh, two or three minutes. and Let everybody get reassigned. Let the person at the front who's peeling around to the back get tucked in, and they're ready to rest. Then get after it. He taught me little hand signals from when you're passing and when you're coming around vehicles and when you're slowing and when you're... Little things like that tried to help me. When you're doing this, don't get funny with your... Stay calm. You're going to make people nervous, man. There's things to learn from veterans. There's things to understand from people that have pushed off some weights in their lives. Not that your weight's the same as their weight, but they've learned how to deal with that conversation with veterans. Praying... For identification, revelation, word for identification, conversations, for assistance. But I remind us of this. None of that is any good at any time if we do nothing with it. Casting off is up to us. So the author said, get a firmer grip. Strengthen your legs. Do this. Discipline. Make that choice. Through willpower and determination, do what is right. That's how we succeed. Would you bow your heads?
Lord Jesus, Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have to serve you. So grateful, Lord, for your interest, your love, your concern. You've displayed it in so many ways. You came, lived in this world, spent 33 some odd years living as a human being, recognizing, understanding, knowing what it is we face. And Lord, through your death, burial, and resurrection, you have offered us, Lord, forgiveness and empowerment. Lord, then you inspired your disciples, those early followers, to write and record. And now your divine inspiration has provided your word to direct and guide us. Thank you so much, Lord, for all those advantages you've placed in our lives. Lord, I pray right now that you would walk with us in a very special way in the next few days in particular. We invite you, O Lord, to help us to see weights, to recognize really efficient sins. I invite you, O Lord, to help me to recognize and understand. Reveal to me, Lord. Help me to see. And Lord, I am committed. It is my desire, O Lord, to run this endurance race. Lord, I am desirous, Lord, to be faithful, Lord, when you return. It's my goal, Lord, to hear you say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's our goal, Lord. That's our desire. I pray, Lord, that you continue to lead us and direct us. I'm committed, Lord, to pursuing and surrendering to your discipline to be more effective, Lord, following after you, growing nearer, loving you more dearly day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. Oh